0: Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 as we're continuing our series, Conversations with God. And uh, we've covered quite a bit in the last three weeks of this series. Um, Very excited where we've gone already. Um, John chapter 3 is where we're going to be in just a moment. And uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, We've talked about... Uh, over coffee, if you will, with the Lord, as we've talked about, what would it be like to sit across from the Lord and have a conversation with Him? Ask questions that we might have, or, or just bring up topics and ask, the Lord, give me clarity on this and help me understand this better. Um, and obviously, we've covered a lot of ground with giving. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. What would the Lord want us to know about giving? About tithing? About giving to Him? What is what are priorities with the Lord when we give? Uh, our finances to him through the local church. Uh, We've talked about faith. What does the Lord want us to know about faith? Uh, What does the Lord last week want us to know about our motives? Um, I I hope that was eye-opening to you, and I hope it gave you encouragement to think about, Lord, why do I do what I do? Remember, God is much more concerned with the why you do what you do than the what you do. Um, You can do all the right things, but with a wrong heart and a bad attitude, and the Lord sees that. And uh, I always use the illustration about my children. When if I ask them to do something, like clean your room or take out the trash, and they, with a very hard heart and a very expressive emotional moment, you guys know what I'm about, their the parents. They do whatever I ask them to do. They take the trash out, but they stomp their feet the whole way. They were given attitude, though. They whine the whole time. Were they obedient? Yeah, they did what I asked them to do, but they did do it with the right heart. One thing that Sandra and I have tried to do, not only in our own lives right? Because remember, mom and dad, we've got to be the example, right? If, if you're going to work with a bad attitude, and you're moping about the house and stomping about the house because you've got to do all these responsibilities, guess what? Your kids are learning. So when you're saying, hey, you should do that with the right heart, most of the time kids want to say it, but they're worried about getting a whooping. They'll be like, well, shouldn't you do that with a good heart? Don't you love when your children, like, humble you? I always love that when that happens. I really do. Um... But well, something Sandra and I have tried to really, in our own lives, practice, but also encourage our children with is, is it's to be obedient with the right heart. Obedience is great, but we've got to do it with the right heart. Why? Because the Lord is so much more concerned with the heart of why we're doing what we're doing, not so much what we're doing in regards to. You can do all the religious work you want. You can look like the atypical perfect Christian family. But if you don't have the right heart in it, Jesus says it's empty, right? It's vain, That idea of vain just means empty or without without weights, without substance. So we've covered a lot of ground. We've asked, man, what would God want us to know about our faith, about our giving, about our motives? And we've discovered a similar principle every week. and something that God, I truly believe. If we could sit across from Him and have coffee with Him, and again, great coffee mugs. I I don't know, these are great. I love these. Um, If we could have coffee with Him... I think the common thing in every topic, every question, and I'm going to ask questions over the next couple of weeks as we continue the series. Maybe not your question. Maybe not your topic. But I guarantee you there's a similar theme here. He's going to remind you, whatever your question, whatever your topic, it's not about you. Your faith, not about you. Your giving, your finances, not about you. Your motives, if we're really being honest. The why, isn't based in you. It's based in Him, in His Word, in His grace. And so this morning, as well as everything else, we're going to talk about these ideas. This morning, we're trying to transition just a little bit to a little bit of a tougher topic for some. Uh, for some, this is, a, it's for me, a little bit of a tougher topic to talk about because it's not something we look forward to talking about or thinking about. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about what would God want us to know about a place called hell. What would God want us to know About a place called hell. Now, let me just encourage you with this right at the onset. Man, Danielle and Jeff, great job on that song. That was awesome. This is kind of one of those good news, bad news things. So, we're going to talk about kind of, I guess, the bad news today. We'll get to the good news soon, okay? So, it's not like it's all bad news, all right? We are going to spend time uh, here in a couple weeks talking about what does God want us to know about heaven. But I thought it was kind of not really doing justice to the Word of God. If I talked about heaven and how glorious heaven will be and all these things that the Word of God tells us, But there's also a kind of a beautiful mystery to heaven, isn't there? There's a lot we don't know about heaven. We have little insights or pictures here, pictures there. We have a little bit of a, a good idea of what the throne of God might look like, the throne of His, of His glory. But we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But I thought, man, is it really fair to talk about heaven but not to talk about what would God want us to know about hell? And so we're going to dive into that this morning, and we're, we're going to give you a little bit of a background. Now. So I'm not exhaustive, okay? And you might say, well, he didn't touch on this, or didn't touch on that. If you have questions after this, please see me. I would love to dialogue with you and have a conversation about that, what that looks like for you. But I want to open up this morning, and I want to share right at the onset that culturally speaking, um, people have little to no fear of hell today. Culturally speaking, outside of the church, and even unfortunately in some churches, people have little to no fear of a place called hell. They believe either it's a party all the time. It's just party, party, party. It's all the time. It's all fun. It's all crazy good times. It's like a frat party that never stops. Or people think, well, God is way too loving to ever actually send someone to hell so therefore, I don't fear hell because ultimately I believe that even though I've lived a horribly sinful life, when I stand before God, He'll just give me a pass because, well, God is so loving and so good. Some will believe there is no actual hell. So why do I need to fear something that doesn't exist? But if we look into the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, Jesus spoke more on the topic of hell than He ever did heaven. Heaven. So while culture, even church culture, shies away from this topic, I want us to consider why Jesus spoke on it so often. He spoke to it more often than anyone else. And he spoke on it in his earthly ministry more than anything else. And why was Jesus so focused on this topic? Now I want to warn you right now, some of you grew up in what we call hellfire brimstone churches or preaching. That's the kind of preaching that makes you sweat. Not just I'm sweating while preaching it, you're sweating while hearing it. You know what I'm saying? You're just thinking, oh man, I can't wait for the buffet because I'm getting under conviction right now. You know, i got to get out of here. This, that's, that's not what I'm talking about either. I'm not talking about guilting people into salvation. I'm not talking about trying to pour so much fear into it that people receive Christ just because I just get out of jail free card, get out of hell free card, right? I just don't want to go. Now, obviously, there is an aspect of fear we need to have. But listen, it's not about trying to talk you into salvation. I've always said this, and I believe it's true. If I can convince you or talk you into salvation, apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, someone can talk you out of what you think is salvation because you never really had it. The Holy Spirit of God working in my life, revealing to me the truth of God's Word and showing me the gospel of Jesus Christ and responding to that with a heart of faith receiving, repenting of my sin, receiving the gift of salvation. That is salvation according to the Word of God. But someone talking me into four points of salvation, and I go, okay, that sounds right, that sounds good. I guess I'll believe that. I've tried this, I've tried that, I'll try this, and that'll work, that'll get me out of jail. That'll get me out of hell. be so careful there. Can someone get saved that way? Sure, maybe, I don't know their heart, But I would much rather, when you share Christ with somebody, tell them the truth of hell, as we're going to talk about. But balance it. Because just as much as hell is real, guess what? So is heaven. And just as much as Jesus talked on a place called hell, that I believe, as we're going to talk about, is a literal, real place that exists. He also said in John 14, that where I am, there you may be also. So we can't just hammer somebody with this side, or only hammer with the cure. If you tell somebody they're cured, and they're cured, and they're cured, and they're cured, but they don't even know they're sick, the cure means nothing. But man, if you can balance, explain the gospel as, listen, this is what we are saved from. This is what we're being redeemed from. Man, it makes the cure seem that much more appealing and needed in their life. So I want to open up to John chapter 3, and I'm not going to read the verse to start with that maybe you might be thinking, uh, but look at verse 18. John chapter 3 and verse 18, because what would God want us to know about the literal place called hell? John chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That he says right here, he that believes is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. We all know John three sixteen, right? Many of you have memorized this. Go up a couple of verses. Let's. I'm going to go ahead and read it because I want to put it in context. He says this: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he talks about that belief in Christ will either bring No condemnation and a lack of belief in Christ will bring condemnation. So here's what we have to ask ourselves. What is he talking about? What does it mean to perish? What does condemnation look like? What is Jesus getting to here? Why did he have to save us? Why did he have to redeem us? What are we being redeemed from? What does condemnation look like? What What is the bigger picture here? And I truly believe because of churches beating people up with the gospel, So many churches have stopped even mentioning words like hell and sin and the blood. But here's the truth of it. My sin deserves a consequence. And Jesus took that consequence on the cross. He shed his blood for my sin. And it is only by faith in that that I am not condemned. Do you know why Romans 8, chapter 1 says those that are in Christ are not under condemnation? Do you know why that's true? Not because of me being a good person and an awesome guy and do all these good things and I know all these prayers and I've memorized the Bible and I've been baptized and I've done all these Christian things. No, no, no. It's because I've put my faith in the only way to find salvation in Jesus Christ. The Bible says it very clearly. There's one name given among men whereby you must be saved, and it is the name of Christ. What are we being saved from? I remember when I was in high school, junior year of high school, I was uh, actually senior I'm sorry, senior year. I was on fire for the Lord. And I was going to, you know, just charge the gates of hell with a super soaker. I was ready to go. And I remember I talked to some friends at the lunch table, and I found out really quickly, my friends weren't really into this whole Jesus thing. (laughs) Like, I didn't expect the the result. They didn't, like, you know, persecute me and, like, throw stones at me or anything like that. But they just kind of, you know, made fun of it. And I remember I said that. I said, man, you guys need to receive Christ and be saved. And they looked at me so puzzled, like, saved from what? Like, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not in danger of anything. I'm not, what are you saving me from? What do I need your God to save me from? I'm good. See, because our culture doesn't understand the absence of judgment now does not mean the absence of judgment later. And so what does this look like? What, what are we talking about here? What was Jesus wanting to save us from? What is this place, hell, that Scripture talks about? I want to look at this just quickly. I'm going to give you guys actually, I know it's kind of a gloomy, cloudy morning, and I was coming into the church today, and and Sandra knew what I was talking about today, and she said, well, the weather matches. And I said, no, 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 stop doing that. We're good. But I want to do this. I want to give you guys some information this morning. And and you know me, I, I don't want you guys to walk out of here just with three, you know, sermon points, a puppy dog story, a poem, and you feel good and you go home. I don't want that. I want to give you guys some information so you can begin to decide, do I really believe in a place called hell? Do I really believe that anybody who doesn't know Christ, and we're going to get to all this in a little bit more detail, is actually going to a literal place called hell for eternity? Do I actually believe that? Or in the back of my mind, even as a Christian, I think, "Ah, I don't know. And I think God will spare him at the end. I think God will give him a second chance. I think God, you know, I mean, I think he's going to realize some things and look at their situation and go, no, they, they get a pass. Because, you know, looking at their life situation and all this and circumstances and situational ethics, if you will. And so what, 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 are, what do we think about hell? What do people think about hell? Not even outside the church, but in the church. And so I want to give you guys the major views of hell. What people think hell is like. These are kind of the major, broad views of the topic of hell. The first one. One of the first views, and these are not in any particular order, I'm going to spend a little more time on a couple of them because I think they have a little more weight, a little more appeal to some people. So I'll spend a little bit more time on them. But we're just going to give you kind of some bullet points here. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write them down. But if you want these notes of mine after the service, please talk to me. I can email them to you, send them to you, whatever you need. The first, one of the first views, one of the more popular views, is called the metaphorical view of hell. The metaphorical view. It is really what it sounds like. There will be a place of hell, but the idea of fire is not literal, but a metaphor of having knowledge of what was possible, but unable to have forgiveness. So the metaphorical view of hell somebody says, you know, there probably is this place of punishment after death, but it's not this literal place of torment, meaning there's not literal fire, literal these, literal that. It's just a place where you have knowledge that you could have been forgiven, but never was. And now you can't be forgiven. So it's the knowledge of that that creates the feeling of this fire, this torment, if you will. That's kind of the metaphorical view. Hell becomes an existence without God, which is pain enough, they would say. Hell in and of itself becomes pain enough because God is just not there. And the knowledge of that is what they would tell you is hell. Another view on hell, which really isn't a view of hell per se, is the purgatorial view. Purgatorial view. This is the idea of purgatory. Now we know purgatory isn't really hell, if you believe in such a place as purgatory. It's more of a limbo. It's more of an in-between. It's a place where you go after death, if you have any unconfessed sins, and you go to this place of holding, and your family, your friends, your church... Um, are praying for you, um, sometimes giving money to the church on your behalf. Uh, They're doing works for you. And those things are kind of purifying you of your sins in purgatory. And then after that time has been met, that, that sin has been paid for or sins, now you are elevated or taken to heaven at the end of that cycle. No one knows, uh, even in churches that believe this, no one knows how long that cycle is. It's individual to the person. Uh, But in some of these churches, the more money you give, it seems to encourage it to go faster. I'm not saying that's a coincidence. I'm just saying, apparently, there's a connection there. Now, I personally believe that the metaphorical view and the purgatorial view, which, again, isn't necessarily a view of hell, but an idea of punishment— Um, Have no scriptural weight. There's no scriptural evidence of those things. There's no verses we can go to. Uh, If you grew up in a church that preached purgatory or taught you that, um, there's two main passages they'll use, and I don't have them with me right now, but there's one verse, I believe, from uh, 1 Corinthians and one verse from what the books are called the Apocrypha books. They're the books that were um, written in between the Old and New Testament. And uh, what many people believe is that those books are historically accurate. They talk a lot about history, wars, and battles, and things like this of the nation of Israel. Uh, Between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's about 400 some years, 440 years, 420 years. And in that time, these books were mostly comprised. Uh, We would not, the majority of of churches, do not believe those books are scripturally accurate, meaning they're not God-spoken. They're just historically accurate for the most part. Some churches, specifically, and I'm not picking on them, I'm just giving you the information, uh, the Catholic Church would believe those books are the same as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, same as the rest of the Gospels. So if you take one of the verses from one of the Apocrypha books and one of the verses from 1 Corinthians and combine it together and you read it with an idea that purgatory exists, you can make it say that purgatory exists. An interesting historical note, and I know I give you guys a lot of information, but I want you to be aware of these things because I feel like if we don't go deeper, we're likely to be convinced into something that isn't biblical. The Catholic Church specifically rejected the Apocrypha books as Scripture early on. They adopted the belief of purgatory, then adopted Apocrypha as Scripture, and then used a verse from the Apocrypha to prove purgatory, which they have already believed before they adopted these books as Scripture. So when you look at that kind of stuff, you start seeing, okay, maybe there was this idea to push this belief, and now we need something biblical to make it sound good. So I would say metaphorical uh, does not carry weight biblically based on what Jesus says, and we'll get into that a little bit here. I don't believe purgatory carries any scriptural weight. Another one that is kind of becoming more and more popular today is called the universalism view or universalist idea. What this means is that no matter what somebody believes, every single human being on planet earth will be saved. Whether you accept Christ or not, whether you believe in Jesus, whether you believe in uh, worship, uh, Hindi practices, or, or you're Muslim, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Atheist, it doesn't matter. It's all irrelevant. God will just save everyone because Jesus came and died on the cross. So everyone goes to heaven. Again, I would say this goes right in the face of things that the Apostle Paul wrote, that Jesus himself said, which Jesus just said in John 3, that if you believe, no condemnation. If you don't believe, condemnation. So I see a parallel there that if you believe, there's salvation, there's redemption. If you don't believe, there's some form of consequence or punishment. So again, I don't believe that holds. Wait. Another view that we're going to spend a little bit of time on, I'm going to give you guys a lot of verses. We're not going to turn there for time's sake. um, But it's called the annihilationist view. The annihilationist view. This means exactly what it sounds like. Annihilationist means what? One who is annihilated. Someone that's annihilated. What does it mean to be annihilated? It means to be removed from existence. You just disappear. Okay? Poof. Okay? By the way, if God wanted to do that, I would have been poofed a long time ago. Anyone else make a mistake and realize God could have just poofed you and he didn't? Because he's gracious and loving and kind? That's another conversation we had this morning. We have the weirdest conversations on Sunday morning before coming to church. I don't know if that's a coincidence or what. But we said something about God zapping people. And Sandra said something about, like, yeah, just zap, gone. And I said, well, I'm glad God doesn't zap people because I got it zapped a long time ago. You know what I'm saying? And she's like, oh, amen. I said, especially the whole honor your mother and father thing. When I was a kid, I'd have been zapped like 12 times over, okay? In a week. Okay, it's just it's just crazy. But this is the idea that that at the end of your life, there is no actual hell, no actual anything. The punishment you receive is you are just poofed. You're just gone. You just disappear. You leave existence. Okay. And I want to give you the scripture that, because this is one that's becoming a little more popular too. And I want to give you the verse that, that this party, this group would tell you, this is why we believe that. And when you read the verse, you might go, oh, that makes sense. That sounds right. So let's, let's talk this out. Because again, if God was here, I think he would want us to know these things. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And this is the, one of the verses that they would use. Matthew chapter 10. But I believe when we look at the the Word and look at the depth of this Word and how it's used in Scripture, we'll get an understanding of a little bit clearer picture. So this, again, is that idea that you just kind of leave existence. There's no actual punishment. The punishment is you are just removed from existence. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28 says this, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now let's stop for a second. That's crazy what Jesus just said. Like, I don't know if you've ever read that and just go, oh, I got that. If you just go, I got that and move on, you didn't really read what Jesus just said. Because when you read what Jesus said, you should be like, whoa. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's trying to encourage them. He's saying, hey, when you go out into this world and preach Christ, guess what's going to happen? People are going to start persecuting you. People are going to start coming against you. People are going to want to attack you. And I love, there's a lot of things that Jesus says here, as well as in Luke, we've been studying on Sunday nights. He talks about the fact that, hey, when you get drawn before the magistrates or the courts, this is cool. He says, don't worry about what you're going to tell them. Have you ever sat around and just thought, man, what would I say if this question was asked? Or what would I do if this kind of persecution came? Or what would I do? How would I respond to this? I think about that stuff sometimes. Jesus says, no, 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 don't even worry about it. Because when you're in the persecution, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. Isn't that awesome? Man, when you're in the heat of it and you're like, Lord, I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. This is why sometimes you've been in persecution or a conflict. And you literally were like, you had to pray and say, God, please give me wisdom here. And all of a sudden the Spirit begins to speak to you and just confirming things already in his word. Right By the way, when the Spirit tells you, hey, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, that's not a new revelation you just got. That's in here, by the way. Isn't it awesome how he does that? A verse you read 20 years ago, memorized at VBS, and you don't even remember you memorized it. And all of a sudden the Spirit goes, hey, remember this verse? Remember this word? And you're like, oh man, God, thank you so much. That was perfect. It's what I needed for right now. And he gives you those words. In the same idea, he's telling them, listen, when people are coming against you and trying to threaten you and persecute you, what does he say? Don't fear those that can kill the body. So don't fear man is what he's saying. We have a lot of fear of man in our world today. We're so worried about what people think and how they think and how they judge and all these things. To the little things, to the big things. But we, cannot, we can trust that God is greater. God is greater. Stronger. We don't have to fear man. So, what does Jesus say? Rather than fearing man, what's the worst a man can do to us? What's the worst a human being can do to you? To kill you, right? To end your life in this world. That's an upgrade, right? Like, that's a promotion. Isn't that what Paul said? Man, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's why being a Christian is the most exciting way to live because nobody can stop what God is doing through you if God is with you, moving you to do what he wants to do in this world. And we have no fear. Remember those no fear t-shirts when you were, I mean, when I was in junior high, they were everywhere. Right? No fear. I remember we got in trouble. We couldn't wear them to school anymore, so kids wore them inside out. That's eighth grade logic right there because that's way cooler than wearing a shirt you're not supposed to wear. Wear it inside out. That's probably cool nowadays. I don't even know what's cool. We were just talking about that. Uh, Pastor Keith and I were talking about Snapchat. We don't know what Snapchat. I don't have Snapchat. I don't know what it is. And his daughter, Abby, was educating us a little bit on Snapchat. And we were like, hey, thanks. thanks, Abby. Appreciate that. When you think about this idea, Jesus says, no, don't fear man. But he doesn't say don't fear anyone or anything. What does he say? There is one you should fear. And you should fear the one that could kill body and destroy soul in hell. Man, that's powerful stuff. God is saying, you need to fear me. But what does he mean here? Because this is the verse a lot of people kind of camp on when they say, oh, you see the word destroy? Do you see it? They'll go, oh, destroy. That means, poof, you're gone. Hell's not a place. It's a lack of existence. It's just you're destroyed. You're eradicated. So I wanted to do this. I'm going to give you guys just a few verses. And I know it's going to be a little exhaustive for some, but I've got nine verses where the same verb is used For this word destroyed. And I wanna look at how the word is used. This word is actually used 80 times in the New Testament. 80 times. So we have a pretty good idea of what what it means, right? Or what it could mean. The word itself is a verb in the Greek. And it has a couple different meanings depending on how it's used in context. But I wanna look at these examples and see what did Jesus mean here by destroyed? Does he mean you're just eradicated? So I'm gonna give you the verse. We're not going to turn it for time's sake. I'm going to give you the verse, give you what it kind of says. You can jot it down. If you have questions, see me after. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. I'm going to sit down because there's a chair available. And I keep forgetting the chairs here. I bumped into it and I was like, hey, there's a chair there. I'll sit down. Okay, so just how my brain works. Pray for Sandra. Matthew 2, 13. Herod wanted to murder the baby Jesus. Remember this? They wanted to to murder him, wanted to kill him. Same verb, same idea, same word is being used for murder, okay? Matthew 8.25, the disciples are afraid of drowning. They're afraid of perishing to the water. They're afraid of drowning physically. Same verb is used. This idea of drowning or giving it under the waves. They're, They're afraid of dying, if you will. Luke 5.31, Jesus talks about the example or the illustration of the new wine in the old wineskins. Remember this example, this illustration? And he says the wine skins will crack and break. They will be ruined. That idea of ruined wineskins, same verb as the word destroyed. Ruined wineskins. In Luke 15, it's used three times to speak of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost So here it deals with the idea of being lost. John 6, 27, uh, they talk about the food that perishes, the food that perishes. Perishable food is the verb being used there. John 17, 12, Jesus said, None of them God gave to him have perished except for one. We know Judas, the son of perdition. He was lost, if you will, but he was never really with Jesus. But Jesus says none of them have perished, none of them have been lost. That's the same idea there. Luke 21, some of you can relate to this, actually deals with the loss of hair. The loss of hair. No one want to testify? Okay, all right, we'll move on. I'm not there yet. Maybe I will be one day. Praise the Lord. deals with the idea of loss of hair. Acts 8.20, Simon trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Peter says, may your money Perish with you. That idea of perish again. Mark 14.4, uh, perfume was wasted or spilled out. Remember when, when the woman came and poured the perfume on Jesus' feet, Judas said, what? Why has this been wasted? It could have been used. It could have been sold for money, which I carry the bag so I could take a little off the top. But I'm just saying it could have been used for something better. It's been wasted. That's the same idea, same verb. So from these examples, remember I gave you nine. It's used 80 times. I gave you nine examples. The word can mean to kill, to perish, to ruin, or to be lost, to be wasted. Those are the examples we just gave you. To kill, to perish, to ruin, to be lost, or to be wasted. Nowhere in all 80 examples does the verb mean to be annihilated or to be removed from existence. No use of that verb means that. So this annihilationist view, there's no hell. You just cease to exist. I believe that goes against what Jesus actually said. And I believe that if you look at the word itself that they would use, it doesn't match up. So quickly, let's move on. The fifth view that I want to talk about today is called the literal view. The literal view. What this means is hell is a real place of real punishments that is described as a place of fire And darkness. And it is a place where God's presence is not, meaning you are not in the presence of God. It is void there. This view, when I say literal view, we mean that what Scripture speaks to as far as the nature of hell, we take literal, that it actually exists. However, let me say this, because some of you might have heard this debate or this argument, throughout church history, especially in the Middle Ages, especially in the Middle Ages, um, there was times where things were written about hell, giving very descriptive imagery of hell. Very descriptive things, talking about people being held over open fire pits and people being displayed before demons and all these things. Very descriptive language that is not necessarily spelled out here in the Word of God. So when I say literal view, I mean if the Word of God says this is what hell's like, then that's what we base on. We say, this is what I believe it matches up to. It's a real place of real fire. Now, let's be honest as well. There's a lot about hell we don't really know. There's a lot about hell that's kind of vague in spots or areas that's not 100% clear in the description of what it's like. The common words used for hell in the New Testament are the words Hades, which is a Greek word, which just basically means death or grave, and Gehenna. Gehenna is referring to an actual place, in Israel, outside Jerusalem, that was also kind of like a dump. And they, there would be fires burning there all the time. And Jesus compared the fires of hell to those fires of Gehenna. said so it's like a constant fire that's always burning but never consuming. Man, it's a crazy word picture that Jesus gives here. Now, is Gehenna the literal place of that literal valley and literal Jerusalem and that's where you're going to spend eternity? No. What he's saying is, Just like Gehenna, this physical place is like this, this is what hell is going to be like. So we say the literal is fire, like Jesus said. We take the literal point of what Jesus was using. But if somebody writes a book on hell with all these descriptions that aren't necessarily in this book, we would not take that as accurate necessarily. There's a lot of books, by the way. Uh, We're going to get to some of the books about heaven In a couple of weeks. I don't know if any of you guys have ever read those books or heard those books or watched the movies. I don't know if there's movies, but there's a ton of stuff out there. Apparently, in the last 20 years, more people have gone to heaven and come back than ever in history. Um, It's pretty interesting. Um, I'm just blown away by the the regularity at which people go to heaven now. It's just every other day you hear about another person going to heaven and coming back. Um, So, we're going to talk about that. What does that look like? There was a book that was written 23 Minutes in Hell, and uh, it was hugely popular. Uh, by the way, just because a book says it's Christian or written by a Christian doesn't mean you should read it. Um, you need to be very guarded against those things. But in some of these books, descriptions are given. And we'll talk about it later on, that even the ones about heaven. Isn't it interesting that some of these books on heaven contradict each other? How's that happen? Nowhere is there a contradiction here, but these people go to heaven, come back and tell stories, and it's like, wait, that. but you said it's like this, and you said it's like that. You said hell's like this, and they say it's like this. So what do we do? We go to the constant Word of God. This is our standard, by the way. This is the only thing God said is inspired. Now, commentaries are great. I use commentaries. I use study Bibles. Great. The commentator is not inspired by God like the Word of God is inspired by God. This is the spoken word. So this is what I mean when I say literal. Jesus spoke to hell as a conscious place of fire and darkness, a place of punishment for sin. The idea of sin bringing a consequence is foreign to our ears. Did you hear what I said there? The idea of sin bringing a consequence to our cultural ears is not one we accept. We tolerate all kinds of sin, and even the sin that is illegal, it's all really no big deal. I mean, do you ever see this in our culture today? Isn't this true? We tolerate sin all the time. We don't, we don't necessarily bring consequence to all sin. Some sin is, is illegal, so you go to prison for some sin. But a lot of sin, there's no instant punishment. You sin, God doesn't strike you down and we go, oh, I'm good. So even the idea of consequence for our sin is kind of foreign, right? We don't really think about that. Some of us think that God owes us, and who is he to judge me? Romans chapter 2, for time's sake, we won't turn there, but Romans chapter 2, verse 5. The apostle Paul warns that all sins committed apart from salvation in Christ are storing up a day of wrath is coming. That's another word we don't like to hear. And let me, man, listen. I'm not like up here going like wrath, wrath, wrath. I love this stuff. It's real stuff. Paul says you can think you're getting away with it, but you're not. Do you know why God hasn't struck you down? Struck you down rather in your sin apart from Christ because He is gracious. And he has given time for you to repent. And he's he's pleading with you, receive forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Receive forgiveness. But the Apostle Paul says, there will be a day. Even Hebrews says, it is pointed on the man once to die, and then the judgment. See, there's that word again. We don't like judgment and consequence and punishment. Even raising your kids anymore. Don't tell your kids you're punishing them. You'll hurt their ego. Man, you should have heard some of the stuff my parents told me when I was growing up. Talk about a hurt ego. There's time I walk into school, like, oh. my friends will be like, what happened? Oh, man, they got me good yesterday. Woo! You sit on that wood desk, and you're just, like, kind of hovering because you're like, Whoa. you might say, your parents spanked you? You know what? They did it lovingly, and they did it because I needed it. Now, you might be sitting there saying, like, why don't spank my children? That's not my call. I'm telling you what my parents did, and I'm thankful for it. Now, every child is different. I'm not saying we spank our kids 24/7 and all that stuff. We're not getting into that, okay? But the point is, if I do something wrong, there's a consequence. That's just nature, that's the nature of the law of nature. If you sow it, you will reap it. Now, what consequence looks like, to what degree, for what sin, that's up to you to decide between you and mom and dad and the household and all that stuff. I'm just saying, Hebrews seems to say, Jesus said, Paul said. That all these sins you think you're getting away with apart from Christ, you're not. It is collecting for you and collecting for you and there will be a day of retribution. But oh man, if you receive Christ as your Savior, he takes all of those sins away and he replaces it with righteousness and joy and peace. And he says, oh no, no you're not condemned because I put that sin on my son and he died for that sin that so you don't have to spend an eternity apart from me in hell. Man, if it's just poof, we're gone. If it's just metaphor, if it's just allegory, then why would he die for you? Why would he give his life for you? So what are some objections to eternal punishment? we got to fly. I'm not even through the first point yet. Objections to eternal punishment. Here are some common objections. And let's just say this. I have some of these same objections. There are times in my humanity I object to the idea of eternal punishment. It doesn't sit well with me. For many that reject the idea of a literal and eternal punishment is that it is contrary to the idea that God is love and grace. About seven or eight years ago, Rob Bell, who was pastoring a church in Grand, Grand Rapids area, is called Mars Hill Church, wrote a book called Love Wins. The book exploded and people were reading it like crazy. The book basically starts. states using a human understanding of fairness. Mark that in your mind. Rob Bell wrote a book using human understanding of fairness to critique the God of all creation on his level of fairness. The book states that all of humanity will go to heaven because God is love and after all, love wins. Can I be honest with you? I wish that was true. Man, wouldn't that be awesome? I wish we could take all these scriptures that say that there is consequence and judgment and punishment and separation. I wish we could just say, God, we just don't, we're just going to remove those. And I wish it was true. I wish that every single human being would go to heaven. But you know what's crazy is God wishes the same thing. God hopes for the same thing. You might say, well, that sounds really weird. What does he say in 1 Peter? God says, I I hope, I desire, I long that none would perish but all would come to repentance. Man, what does that perish look like? Why does it break his heart that we are turning away from him and rejecting him? Because there is a real place called hell. God is a God of love. And praise God he is because that's what offers us grace. But God is not one attribute above another. God is not love more than he is holy. God is not merciful more than he is just. God is not gracious more than he is majestic. And everything God does is right. Everything God does is fair. And I know, as Kathy said, when you're going through a trial, you're going through a season, you don't believe that. But believe me, his word says he is. And if he is God, then we submit to who he is. We are just a lump of clay on a potter's wheel. How dare I look to the potter and say, why would you make me so? Why would you show mercy to those that have received Christ but reject those that have never received Christ? Who are you to do that, God? And as only God can, he reveals to us, as he did to Job, where were you when I formed the foundations of the world? Where were you when I created everything? Where were you when I made Adam and Eve in the garden? Where were you when I said, this is what I expect? Where were you when they fell into sin? So we just find ourselves silent before a holy God and say, God, you are just. I don't like it. It doesn't sit well with me in my flesh, but it is true. John Wolverd says this about this idea when he wrote, One is faced with the fact that the only place one can prove absolutely that God is a God of love and grace is from Scripture. If one accepts the doctrine of God's love and grace as revealed in the Bible, how can that person question then the same Bible teaches eternal punishment? And both are true. Many will ask, is it loving for God to punish us? How is it loving for God to punish us? It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Really, the question should be, is it fair for God to forgive us? Man, we say, God, how dare you punish that person, when the question should be, God, how could you ever have forgiven me? How could you ever forgive anyone for the sin we've committed? See, we don't think it's a big deal because we don't think our sin is a big deal. You think, what's the big deal about Adam and Eve? They just ate a fruit from the tree. That wasn't sin. That wasn't the sin that was committed. The sin was when Eve turned her heart from God's word and trusted in the word of the serpent and put her faith in that serpent and his word, exchanged the truth of God for a lie that was when sin took its seed and the eating of the fruit was just the result of the sin choice. Man, how dare we? God is so loving and gracious to forgive anyone. And he offers it freely. He says, all you have to do is just receive the gift that I've given you. But so many would turn away. Very quickly, one other thought we might want to pose as we talk about this idea of hell, which is a literal place of literal fire, literal punishment, because we deserve it in our sin. The question I ask is, who goes to hell and why? Real quickly, I know we already answered this a little bit, but we find the reason in Scripture, Romans chapter five and verse twelve. Romans chapter five and verse twelve. Who goes to hell and why? Well, the first reason we go to hell is the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam, and if you think it's all on Adam, just hold on a second. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more. Man, I'm so thankful for the much mores in Scripture. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace, and all of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. There's those words again even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men on the justification of life you know what he's saying here there's sin in adam that binds us to condemnation but one came that offers us righteousness and life and forgiveness and that's the one Jesus Christ so not just the sin of adam another verse you can write down is galatians chapter 3 verse 22 galatians 322 for for notes but there's also the sin of self the sin of self. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans 3, 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Go down to verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's not just the sin of Adam that binds us to condemnation. It's that we also will continue to sin and make sinful choices because we don't want God. We want self. We want self. Now, if we're being honest, no one here, including me, wants to think about the reality of hell, the reality that anyone apart from Christ is sent to this place of eternal punishment. Why? Because it keeps me... Or rather, why do we not want to think about it? Because it's, it's so, somewhat depressing. Man, it's sobering, isn't it? I said it before, do you really believe that anyone in Christ goes to a place called hell if they die in their sin. And I truly wonder if I truly believed it maybe as much as I should, how would that affect my discipleship making? How would that affect my witnessing? How would that affect my desire to see others come to Christ? Would I maybe get out of my way a little bit and see that's why thinking about this reality and that's why I believe Jesus spoke to it as well as many others in the word of God. I believe that's why we need to think about this stuff. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable to think about it. But it's needed because it keeps me from dwelling on inferior thoughts. It keeps me from getting wrapped up in inferior things. It keeps me from struggling to wonder what outfit do I buy? What new car do I get? How comfortable can I make my life? I look forward to retirement because then I can really start living. By the way, ask the retired guys in our church. I think they're doing more work in the church now than they've ever done. But isn't that awesome? I've got guys that have said, man, I I couldn't wait to retire so then I could really start serving as a church. Man, praise God, because their thoughts are on things above, not on things below. These earthly thoughts. And see, so thinking about something like hell and the reality of hell and the consequence of sin apart from Christ is not fun. It's not enjoyable. We don't look forward to it, but it's needed because it gives us focus on our mission You weren't planted here to have a four-bedroom home, two-car garage, picket fence, cabin, boat, perfect little family, perfect little life, all kinds of... That's not why you were put on this earth. Those things may happen, praise God for them. You were put on this earth as a follower of Christ to make disciples for Jesus Christ so that one more person will find eternity in heaven and not go to a place called hell. That's why the church exists. That's why you exist. But man, if we don't think about these realities, we get so wrapped up in the ebb and flow of life. And oh, I just got to worry about what I'm doing. What am I going to have for lunch? Some of you are already thinking about lunch. Stop it. This is Jesus' time. Stop it. The bacon cheeseburger will be there. Or the vegetable salad. Whatever you get. Do you have vegetable salads? Did I just kind of do that, really? you have vegetables and salads? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't know. I'm looking at Keith. He's going, dude, I'm on the cheeseburger. I don't know what you're even talking about. Salad? What's a salad? I don't even know what that is. Man, we've got to dwell on these thoughts. So the only ones who are spared hell are who? Those in Christ. In Christ means placing our faith in Christ the Savior, allowing the saving grace to permeate our hearts and minds to the point of making us imitations of Christ. One more passage, and then we're going to close in prayer. I've talked way too long already. Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1. Realize that the truth of these scriptures are so much more powerful because there is a reality of a place called hell. If hell doesn't exist, that there is no reason to save us from something, then these verses mean very little. It makes the death of Christ seem very vain. And actually, if there is no hell and no punishment to be saved from, then God allowing his son to die for our sins was kind of a cruel thing on God's part. Why would God punish his own son with the murder of the cross if there is no punishment for sin and it doesn't really matter anyway? Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Do you notice he says spiritual blessings in heavenly places? We are already citizens of his kingdom. We already receive blessings from being a citizen of his kingdom, being one with Christ. But that doesn't mean everything's perfect this side of heaven. People say, oh, I haven't seen any blessings in my life. Because you're in a trial or a situation. Listen, your bank account's not always going to be full. It's just a reality of it. Healing doesn't always come the side of heaven. I know that's not popular now either in some places. They'll tell you, oh, man, you're always going to be healed. Paul says to Timothy to soothe his stomach with a medicinal purpose. You know, Paul didn't run over and heal Timothy. He gave him medical advice. Why? Because sometimes healing comes through medicine. Sometimes healing comes through prayer and answered prayer. I mean, we always pray for healing. I believe God can heal anyone of anything at any time, if it's his will. But did you ever think about the blind man? The disciples said, why is this guy blind? Because of his sin or his parents' sin? That's another thing that's taught in some churches today, that you only get sick when you have sin in your life. The same question the disciples asked. Jesus said, no, has nothing to do with any of that. This man was born blind for the glory of God to be revealed, so that he could be healed. I've always said, that's great and powerful. And, oh, man, what a great, powerful praise. Unless you're the blind guy. See, sometimes God does things we can't even fathom. Let me rephrase that. All the time, God does things we can't fathom. And we just trust. We have these spiritual blessings that aren't necessarily tied to earthly things and possessions. It goes on to verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us, I know that's a scary word, look it up, it's not scary, it's all good. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why were you saved? Let's get back to this. Why are you spared hell? Why are you allowed heaven? Because of you? He says, no, no, it's my good pleasure, my will be glorified to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Then the blessing is you are accepted in Jesus Christ, but it's to his glory and his praise that you are saved. Verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Why is the forgiveness of sins so vital? Because there is a consequence for our sins. I know this topic isn't popular today. I know we've been sitting in church. You just feel a little uneasy. The minute I said the word hell, some of you probably shifted in your seats like, oh, here we go. What's he going to say now? You probably think that every Sunday. What's he going to say now? You just scratch your head like, really? I know it's not popular. But can we honestly just step back and say, God, first and foremost, here's the invitation. Super easy. You ready? If you know Christ is your Savior... And I'm going to ask you, I don't usually ask for like mass callings to the altar because I want it to be the Spirit-led, but I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. If you know Christ is your Savior, whether they're in your seats or here at this altar, will you just say, God, thank you for redeeming me. God, thank you for saving me according to your good pleasure and your grace. And thank you that I will not spend eternity in a place called hell because of your forgiveness of my sins. Because you saved me. Because you did everything that was needed. You came to earth when I wasn't even looking for you. When I was in my own sin, you chased after me. And you surrounded me with opportunity. And you opened my eyes by the working of your spirit. And I made a choice. And I'm so thankful that you allowed me to make that choice. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me heaven. And thank you for no condemnation. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Whatever it looks like for you, would you just praise him this morning and say, God, thank you that I don't have to spend eternity in a place called hell, not because of me or my good works or my religion, but because of your salvation. And I've I've been redeemed. But if you're here and you don't know Christ, this is not to scare you. This is to be loving enough to tell you the truth. There is a real place for those who do not know Christ will spend eternity. What's ex- it's exactly like, I'm not sure. But I'll tell you, there's literal fire, I believe. It's literally darkness. It's pain. Yes, I do believe there's a part of the pain is being separated from God because we were created to be connected to him. And I'm going to plead with you as Christ would, I believe, and tell you that you don't have to go there. You can receive Christ today. And not by doing good works, but by saying, Lord Jesus, would you save me and cleanse me of my sin? I repent of my sin and I trust in you, a Savior, because I need you. I can't save myself. The natural consequence for our sin is separation from God. Romans 6.23, death. Not just physical death, spiritual death. Separation from him, but the gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you receive his gift this morning that is offered to you freely, and ask him to save you and to redeem you and to open your eyes to his will for your life. If you know Christ, would you rejoice with us this morning and praise him that he has saved you? Would you bow your heads right there where you are? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, you are truly all of those things I just said. You are gracious And you are loving. But Lord, may we never forget that you are also holy and just. And you take sin so seriously that you sent your Son to die on a cross for our sins, to take our place because he loved this world because he loves his creation, he loves his church. He gave himself for us. And Lord, I don't understand all the ramifications of what that looks like. But I know your word tells me that because we've received Christ as our Savior, that we will have an eternal home with you in your heaven, in your presence. And as much as your grace has allowed us access into salvation, your holiness requires that sin be paid for. And Lord, we can pay for our own sin by rejecting Christ and, and, and dying in our sin, and spending eternity in a real place called hell. You will allow us to do that. You will never force your love on us, force your salvation on us. You cry out to us to make a choice. I pray that everyone in this room knows you as their Savior, but if there's anyone who does not, I pray that they would stop thinking that they're getting away with something, that they would stop thinking that everything's good because they go to church or they're a good person or they do good things, but they would realize that their sin has a consequence. But they can realize today that they can be freed from that consequence by receiving Christ as their Savior today. By putting their faith and trust in you, your death, burial, resurrection as a payment for their sin. May they surrender their life to you as they receive you. We need you. You didn't come because we wanted you to come. You came because we needed you to come, even when we didn't know it. May you lead, guide, and direct. Holy Spirit, may you have rule and reign in this time to lead us and guide us into conviction, to open our hearts and minds to the truth of the gospel, that God be praised. Thank you for those that know you as their Savior. May we rejoice together in our salvation. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As these guys lead us in a song of invitation, would you come? Bend a knee and say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me. May I glorify you with my life. How would you respond this morning?